So hi everybody, Steve Cady here at Bowling Green State University in the Schmidt Horse College of Business with our Doctorate in Organization Development and Change Program, our Symposia Series, our all things sponsored by All Things Change, and we've got all kinds of uh, partners and great people that are associated with our Organization Development and Change graduate programs. We have a master's program and we have a doctorate program. Our doctorate program is uh, the focus of our Symposia Series. Jennifer McCary who I am super proud to have in our program uh, is uh, gonna be speaking today and she'll tell you about herself and the topic. Um, our doctorate program is focused on transforming organizations, revitalizing communities and developing human potential. And it's about, it's all focused on thought leadership and that is our students work to develop uh, ideas that make a difference while they sleep. And what I mean by that is they take their knowledge and create it and scale it and put it out in the world in written and mixed media forms, and advancing their personal brand, giving them opportunities to do the work that they love. And what I say allows them to experience professional joy. And that's doing what you want, where you want, with whom you want, making the living you want. And so uh, that's the core of our program is really about doing work that matters and making a difference in the world. And uh, our program is full of wonderful people like Jennifer. So Jennifer, I'm really glad that uh, you're able to speak with us today and share with us what you are, what you are an expert in and your thought leadership in. And so thank you for making the time today and I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Dr. Katie. I appreciate it. Uh, hi, everybody. Good to see so many folks. Uh, glad that EC just hopped on. I have somebody here from my cohort. Uh, so I am Jennifer McCary, as Dr. Katie said, I use she, her, hers pronouns. Uh, I am the Chief Diversity and Belonging Officer here at Bowling Green State University, overseeing the Division of Diversity and Belonging. Lots of offices that make up that division. Um, I won't bore you with uh, really the professional background, uh, but I am also a student in cohort two of the Organization Development and Change Program. Um, we are celebrating cohort one right now as many of them wrap up um, their time in the program and start to go out and do even greater things in the world. Uh, yesterday they were referred to as the trailblazers. I guess our cohort will be the change agents uh, or the followers, one or the other. <laughs> um, so um, no, but very excited. We're finishing up coursework this summer. Uh, and so the presentation today is just a brief glimpse of a workshop um, by standard intervention specifically related to bias, a focus on bias. Uh, I did this one last year at the ISODC conference. And so uh, it took us a while to be able to uh, set this up. Matt and I have been working together and just a great lineup this year for the symposia series. So I'm grateful to be a part of it. Um, so with that, we are going to go ahead and get started. Um, Again, as I mentioned, this is a brief overview um, of the workshop. I'm gonna give you all some time. We'll do some breakout rooms. If you need to leave, I ask that you um, try to do it before I say that we're gonna go into the breakout rooms. That way folks are not um, in breakout rooms alone, um, but that's okay if you need to go at some point, but we will keep this within the time frame. So as I mentioned, we're gonna talk about bystander intervention. Some of the learning outcomes today are really just that even in this time that you start to recognize injustice and the effect of unjust behaviors on the work environment and overall climate, um, understanding factors that affect our probability of intervening in potential cases of bias and other negative situations, you'll hear me talk about the fact that I believe that bystander intervention is a solution to all forms of injustices, not just things that happen around bias and microaggressions in the workplace or anywhere else. 
um, apply specific intervention techniques to situations that you may witness. And we'll talk about some of that in the breakout room using a situation that happens just in everyday life, not something that necessarily happens in the workplace. I'll ask for you all to use some reactions so that I can really see how engaged you are, how you're connecting with certain things. Um, and so I can see you on this screen. You should be seeing my slides, which are on that screen. So the reactions will be helpful. Um, and this is just a reminder. I know you all know how to use Zoom at this point, um, but just clicking on reactions. And I will tell you if you're using like thumbs up or hearts or stuff like that um, for certain slides, then other times you can just react. So let's dive in. Uh, I want to talk about bias before really talking about bystander intervention because it's important for us to understand uh, what really impacts our organizational cultures when we have unconscious bias or microaggressions that are impacting our organizations and we're not doing much about it. And so the Cambridge English Dictionary definition of bias says that bias is the action of supporting or opposing a particular person or thing in an unfair way because of allowing opinions to influence your judgment. And so this is important because even though bias is a really controversial topic right now, especially if you're in the state of Ohio, I know not everyone is, uh, but Ohio and Florida and some other places have some um, bills and laws that are really saying that we can't talk about certain things like unconscious bias because it's seen as divisive language. But the reality still remains, despite all of that, that we all do hold some bias, right? And when bias is not a part of our discussions, when we're trying to create inclusive spaces, then we can fail to make the meaningful change necessary in our hiring practices, our retention efforts, our effectiveness, and overall job satisfaction. So bias is something that basically when it goes unaddressed really does have a negative impact on our overall organizational culture. And that's why it's important that we do acknowledge that unconscious bias is a part of a lot of our processes and daily interactions. So incidents of bias are often really a result of something that is much deeper, right? And it's something that often comes out in forms of hostility, either in words or in actions, and I'll talk about that a bit, but it's generally targeted at someone because of their perceived or actual race, religion, nationality, gender, gender identity or expression, ethnicity, sexual orientation, political party, diversity of perspective, and so many other aspects of identity. And the thing about what I just listed is it's not just about your uh, protected class identities that you will often hear. It's any level or dimension of identity that someone can find is something different from their own lived experience, perceived or actual, that's often targeted when it comes to bias or microaggressions. And so it's important for us to learn to address these and help everyone understand the severity of the problem with unconscious bias being a part of our organizations. So these behaviors are prevalent, excuse me, in the workplace but a lot of times it's unreported. And so what I often encourage people to think about is do folks within your organization even know who to talk to if they feel like they're experiencing unconscious bias or if there's something that they're witnessing within the organization, do they know what to do in order to help? And that's a part of the reason that talking about bystander intervention is important as well. And so really our goal is for individuals to feel safe and respected in the workplace. And so when that type of tension is there, it can stop people from feeling included and it can stop belonging as well. So bias refers to language and actions which demonstrate bias against a person because of, but not limited to their actual perceived age, their race, color, uh, religion, 
ethnic or national origin, gender, uh, their genetic information, which is something a lot of folks don't think about, disability, sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, or uh, their status as a military veteran. And so there are some things that come up in certain workplaces more than others. But, you know, it's important for us to just think about the fact that everything surrounding identity is typically where we have to think about if um, bias incidents could occur. The bias incidents include things like name call calling, stereotypes, belittling, or excluding others based on their identity. Some but not all bias incidents will rise to the level of discriminatory harassment, sexual misconduct, or other violations of policy or law. And so it's important, again, that we recognize that when it goes unaddressed, it can also escalate to something else. So a bias incident is not the same, and I won't go into great detail, but it's not the same as discrimination, but it can become something that is discriminatory. And so it's important for you to be sure that folks know, you know, who to talk to, where to go, how to report things, that you're checking your reporting tools, that you know exactly who to send people to if they think that they're experiencing something. But also there's a lot that we can do to prevent things like this from occurring. A part of it is the awareness. Another part of it is the development. And something like this is something that you could use to help develop staffs and teams to understand how uh, bystander intervention is helpful. And so we'll get to that. But just uh, just show me some reactions, thumbs up or anything of that nature. Can any of you think of a time when you said something and it just came out wrong? I see Dr. Brocky laughing. <laughs> yeah, that would I see. be every day. Every day. <laughs> So, you know, a lot of times that happens with a lot of us. We say something, I see a lot of reactions. I'm seeing all sorts of reactions, right? A lot of times we say something and it comes off wrong. And it's not necessarily coming from a place where we're trying to uh, have a negative impact on anyone or say something that's harmful, but it just happens naturally that sometimes we say things and in our head, it sounds perfectly acceptable. And then it comes out and we're like, oh, like, I know that didn't come out right. But how often do you correct yourself in that moment? Just another set of reactions. Like, yep, I see some head shaking. Like, yeah, I correct myself in the moment. Some more. Okay, but less reactions. Because a lot of times we let that moment pass, right? And so what's important is that when we think about intervening and changing cultures, that we always make sure that we're starting with ourselves. Because it comes down to the intent that we may have with something versus the impact of our words, actions, or behaviors, right? And so a lot of times the things that we're saying and doing, the intent is harmless. And it's actually oftentimes something that we intend to be helpful. But depending on a person, depending on the circumstances, and depending on the lived experiences of those who we're talking to, what we say, what we do, how things come off are going to impact each person differently. And if the impact of our actions brings harm, then we do have some responsibility to restore that. But a lot of times what also happens, right, is we leave people internalizing what we said when we don't address it right away. So it's really helpful when folks are frank and very candid and upfront and saying, you know, sometimes I say things that are going to come out and you just aren't going to like how they sound. And I don't mean any harm by it. And I know, right, like I'm laughing because Dr. Brocky is one of those folks who I love how frank she is. And sorry to put you on the spot, but I do. I when I got into the first class, it was like, this is somebody who I can like really respect because right away, you know what you're going to get. Right. And it's always the intent is always to be helpful. So by saying that up front, 
it's like, okay. But for the folks who don't practice that by communicating upfront, but then also in those moments where something may truly harm someone to correct themselves in that moment, it could leave someone really internalizing what that means about them, about others, about you. And so it's really important that we make sure that we're trying to communicate things in the way that is going to leave the least amount of harm possible, um, because we want to create spaces that are inclusive and welcoming. So one of the books, um, and I'll, I'll say this book has gotten pretty old in publication now, but 35 Dumb Things Well-Intended People Say, because I do believe that we're all or mostly well-intentioned folks, right? Dr. Maura Cullen wrote this book, and it just gives you all these things that people say where they totally mean well, Right. But it comes off in a way that really is problematic and might be coming from a place of unconscious bias, stereotypes, microaggressions, assumptions. And so the book is offering some corrective tips. Now, what I will say about this book is because it is getting older in publication, times have changed. And if you aren't aware, diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, belonging, justice, all of these conversations have really advanced quickly over the last 10 years. And so that language is something that continuously shifts. So when you're reading a publication that's older around diversity, equity, inclusion, you have to also keep in mind that at the time of the publication, even the language would have been uh, really appropriate then that might not be now. So I will give that plug for the book. Um, but I think that it still gives some good tools. So microaggressions are a bit different than bias, right? And Dr. Sue defines microaggressions as those brief everyday exchanges that send denigrating messages to certain individuals because of their group membership. So it does share that with bias, right? That oftentimes it is because of perceived or actual group membership. But this one is more about the, the messages that are conveyed and how it leaves people feeling. And there are different types of microaggressions that happen. You have your micro assaults, and those are often conscious. Someone intends to cause harm. They mean to be hurtful. And then you have those micro insults. Those are often unconscious. And those are the things that are really more about targeting social identity, being rude, the subtle snubs that happen. Um, and they're frequently unknown to the person who's perpetrating that type of behavior. Micro invalidations are the ones that I would say happen most often. And those communicate things that exclude, negate, or nullify the thoughts, feelings, and the lived experience of folks. And so you'll hear people say things that really don't take into account that I might have a better understanding of something just because of my lived experience. But someone will say, but I have the research to back this. And that happens a lot in academia, right? Where it's like, well, I have the research to back this, but it doesn't account for the lived experience of someone or in the classroom or in the work setting where people are trying to build strategies and uh, work on change methods without necessarily taking into account the folks who actually um, might have experience to contribute, right? And so a lot of times where we see things like micro invalidations, one example I can give you that I'll also talk about ways to intervene, is like when you have someone in a meeting who constantly happens to speak over the folks who identify as women. And everybody notices, like this person always speaks over or someone's ideas are never taken into consideration, right? That they always are ignored, even though they're contributing the same thoughts. So those are some of the things that um, come up that are micro invalidations. They're often unconscious. That person who's constantly cutting people off who are identifying as women probably don't realize that they only do that to women, right? Um, but it still sends a message that perhaps there's some type of devaluing there. And so microaggressions show up in a lot of comments that we hear 
hear often and don't think about. So some examples of that are when people um, are told like, oh, you speak excellent English um, or things like, where are you from? And then the follow-up question is generally, no, like, where are you really from? If someone says like, oh, I'm from California, but they're seeking for them to say that they're from some other country, right? Um, all lives matter. And that one is really controversial. But I'll tell you that a part of the reason that it's a microaggression is because, again, it's taking away from the lived experiences of others who are saying, yep, I do believe that all lives matter. But in this moment, I would like to know for a fact that Black lives matter, that trans lives matter, that police lives matter. And you have that from all sides. But when you have certain groups who are experiencing that devaluing in the community that tells them that perhaps their life doesn't matter as much, then it's hard to get to all without being able to say that this specific group matters too. And so that's an example of a microaggression. One that I used to hear all the time and I used to get offended, and this also tells you about microaggressions, was the, you're so articulate. And I used to think to myself, like, did you not expect me to be able to speak, right? But <laughs> after a while, right, like I realized you don't have to take everything as an insult. And so microaggressions, I say that to say that not everyone will see everything as unconscious bias or as microaggressions, and then other folks will. And so me, for example, there are certain things that I've just heard so much that it's like, nope, now I always look for the intent and not let it get to the point where it's impacting me in a negative way, right? But not everybody is going to be able to do that. And there are certain instances where people shouldn't have to. And so these are just some examples. One that we often hear, and especially in, um, college and university settings is everyone can see that they just work hard enough. But that reason that the, the reason that that is a microaggression is because it really does take away from the barriers that exist that sometimes it doesn't matter how much you work, there are still certain obstacles that you will face that will stop you from being able to have the same success as other folks who might have a totally different set of experiences because they don't have the same barriers, right? So you all came here, probably not knowing I was going to spend so much time talking about bias, but this is important because this is what the bystander intervention is for. So what is bystander intervention? Um, bystanders are people in crowds who see potentially harmful situations, but they don't really do anything. We're all bystanders all the time to so many things. This happens in our meeting settings. It happens when we're out in the community with partners. It happens when we're with families. It happens, you know, in so many different spaces, and we don't even realize that we're a bystander. But the reality is that there are a wide range of events that are happening that by not intervening and taking action, we're contributing to the further marginalization of certain groups and communities. And so it's important for us to recognize how we can intervene to help certain situations. And so we have a choice to make when it comes to what to do when we are seeing something. And so today the focus is on bias, but I do want you to think specifically about all the ways that intervention could be helpful as we continue talking. So oftentimes what's happening is we witness a situation and we simply choose to ignore it. And there are so many reasons that that happens. But one of the number one situations is really that, you know, there's this sense of uh, diffusion of responsibility. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But oftentimes we're choosing not to act. And so my goal with you today, even though this is just a glimpse of this workshop, is that you'll hear something that makes you make a choice to act more often than not right? We want to change the probability of the number of times that people would actually intervene in a situation. So one thing that stops us from intervening is really that bystander effect. And does anybody know, and if you do, just unmute, what is bystander effect? 
Go for it, Bradley. Um, is that the elevator situation where- Tell me more. Um, so when I was doing uh, CPR training, it's kind of the idea that if we're all expecting somebody else to do the thing, we could actually, as a group, as a collective, ignore the problem, ignore the individual, ignore the actor that is being marginalized. So it's kind of like through the CPR training, you get the defibrillator, you call 911. Like we're supposed to memorize these calls to action in order to mobilize yep. so that the under effect is not you know, operating in a way that essentially paralyzes a group from actually doing something that an individual could have done in the first place. Thank you. I love that. That's one of the best answers I've gotten. Everybody always goes to the actual study of bystander effect, which came from a situation in New York where a woman was beaten really badly in front of a ton of folks who watch, but everybody in the apartment buildings watching thought someone else would call. But what I like about you adding that CPR piece is that you're saying it's this call to action to avoid that. So it's exactly it. Bystander effect basically is what stops people from intervening because you assume that someone else is going to take responsibility. And in certain settings, we automatically also defer to certain groups to intervene. And so in a situation in a work setting, if your supervisor is present or any like level of leadership who is above you within your organization, you're automatically going to assume that they will be the ones to intervene. And this is all like research, right? You're going to start to defer to the folks in these leadership positions, then it starts to go to things like gender. Um, and so people will always assume in certain situations that men will intervene, and then it continues to go, right? So bystander effect stops us from intervening. Another thing is the reason to act in socially acceptable ways. And that is really coming down to what we have created as social norms. And in organizational culture, we know that social norms becomes a big part of how our organizations are structured, right? And so if we don't create norms for people to be able to intervene, then they're going to behave in ways that seem socially acceptable within our organization. So there are... Um, some things that you need to know, and I always tell folks, if you don't remember anything else, think about this slide when we leave here today, right? For you to intervene, you first have to notice that an incident has happened. If you don't notice it, then there's no chance that you have to intervene. And one of the things that stops us from noticing an incident is situational ambiguity. If something is happening and it's just you know ambiguous, we don't really know if there's any type of emergency that needs our attention right away. We're not gonna really know that we need to intervene. So you first have to notice and you have to be able to interpret the incident. And I'll talk about that. But if you don't notice it, then obviously you can't take action. So then interpreting the incident means that you need to be able to quickly figure out if it's something that requires your attention and what that means. And so I like that Bradley said, right? Like you're trying to get everybody to act. So once people have noticed, then you need people to interpret that this is something that needs intervention right now. Now I can talk about this in a number of ways, but this one is specific to organizations. So when we're thinking about organizations, right, let's think about that setting. And we all can think of those meetings where someone has said something, some partner, some colleague has said something, and we're all like, oh, that's not going to land well with a whole group of folks, right? Well, when you've interpreted that, that that comment may cause harm, that that action or that behavior or that policy or procedure may cause harm you have to interpret that quickly enough that you're prepared and that you have some way that you're comfortable intervening so that you can say something in that moment or do something in that moment. If you're not comfortable saying something in that moment, 
you need to be sure that you have figured out another way to assume responsibility. So with bystander intervention, you first have to notice, then you have to interpret, and then you want to assume responsibility. And I'm never asking you to put yourself in harm's way. But what I'm asking you to do is identify some way that you won't just ignore the situation again. So let's go back to that example of someone who always gets talked over in a meeting. Or let's even take it to an example where you recognize that someone is being discriminated against, right? You notice it, but you are concerned about the impact if you say something. But I want you to really think about what happens to your organization if you don't. And so assuming responsibility doesn't always mean that you have to directly get involved and say something to the person who's causing harm. It could be that you talk to the person who is being harmed and say, are you okay if I say something? Or how would you like for me to get involved or intervene on your behalf? Or you just submit a report to your human resources department or whoever investigates things for you and you let them take it. But even that action of reporting something is a way of assuming responsibility. But one of the things that we can all do is just start to get familiar with some terms and some questions that we might ask, some actions that we may take to help us in the moment when we're noticing something to just interpret a bit more while we're also causing a distraction or figuring out how to delegate or being direct in that intervention in the moment, right? So a big part of the workshop that I do, and this is only like one of the slides from that, that really helps us understand bystander intervention is what stops us from intervening, right? I could spend all day and I could spend all day literally going through a workshop of ways to intervene and getting you practicing. But one of the things I always start with is what stops us from intervening. And the social psychology tells us that really, you know, it's a lot of stuff that's in our minds. And so situational ambiguity, we talked about already, but pluralistic ignorance and evaluation apprehension are a couple other things that I'll highlight. And these are things that really, you know, they are about us deferring to other folks for clue, uh, cues that we should be concerned about this, right? So pluralistic ignorance, um, really, we're looking at everybody else around us. If nobody else looks disturbed, even if we are, we're going to go off the cues of other people. And we probably won't intervene in that moment because we feel like, oh, you know, maybe it's just me. Evaluation apprehension is we're afraid that we're going to look foolish. So you're really bothered. You know other folks are bothered too, but you're concerned that if you're the one to say something, that you'll look bad, that you'll look foolish for being the one to bring this up. So especially when it's not an organizational norm to intervene, you would feel like you're stepping outside of the comfort zone in order to do that. Diffusion of responsibility, we talked about with bystander effect, the presence of others is something that will diffuse our own um, level of responsibility. We feel like somebody else is going to intervene. You know, there are other things that I typically cover, like perceived costs, which is one that's huge. Perceived costs is really like, what will this cost me? I can give you an example. Um, once I was driving and I used to have a commute, I lived in Baltimore, Maryland, but I've worked in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and it was like an hour and 20 minute commute each way. And I had to cross over a bridge every day to get from Maryland to Pennsylvania. And one day a truck tipped over, like a semi truck tipped over and I'm driving across the bridge and the truck tips over and now it's coming at me this way. Right. And I am leading the traffic as I see this truck tip over and I can see the truck coming to a halt. I can see the driver. I can see the panic and I want to stop. But what might stop me from getting out of my car and intervening in that situation? From getting out of your car, maybe the risk of harm to you potentially if the vehicles behind you have not assessed and seen the risk. 
it, and you all are using such perfect words. Thank you, Stacey. So yet people behind me might not be able to see the clear cut emergency in front of me so I could get hit. What else? What's happening in the chat? Let me see. I haven't opened it up. Sounds like something else is being discussed in the chat. Any other examples? What's something else? Somebody who knows me, who might be in the car with me? Yep. If he said it, my kids, right? So at that time that that accident was happening, my oldest was old enough that she could have unstrapped herself. So even if I could have comfortably gotten out of the car and done something for that driver, I don't know what would have happened if my kid thought that it was safe to hop out of the car and we're on this bridge in traffic and you know, not everybody is gonna stop. So in a split moment, I noticed the situation. I interpreted all of these things. I'm looking at the traffic behind me. I'm looking at the man in front of me in the truck. I'm looking at my kids in my rear view mirror and I make a decision to pull around and call 911, right? It's still a form of intervention, but that's how we have to think about bystander intervention. But that perceived cost is what stops you sometimes from doing things. So if you think that intervening in your organization could get you fired or could get some type of warning or something like that, because people do retaliate, even though it's not legal, those are things that would stop you from intervening. There are a ton of other things, but I'm going to keep moving um, that stop us. But I just want you thinking about the fact that there are things that stop us. So we're going to watch a brief video. Are there any questions before I start this? Because I'm going to have Matt send you in the breakout rooms. Go for it, Bradley. Uh, uh, you just muted. Steve had a question in the chat about um, I enjoy meeting people from other cultures around the world, learning about their homeland and where they grew up. How do I ask about that? Was yeah, that's a great question. I would say lead with that. Lead with, I, I really enjoy meeting folks who are from other countries and just learning more about um, how, you, like where you grew up, what your experiences were. I really am always interested in organizational cultures. Um, can you tell me more about your experiences and your background, right? And so that helps people understand, like this is something that's an interest to me. And could you just tell me, and honestly, I would say, ask everybody that question. So if you get someone in the room like me from Cleveland, Ohio, but my family is from Jamaica. So you might not have known that, but then you're going to get me talking about, yep, and a huge part of our cultural identity is that we're Jamaican. And so I identify as African-American, but everybody else in my family is Jamaican or Jamaican-American. You might not have gotten that answer otherwise. So ask the entire group who you're with. That way too, it can help with the fact that someone might perceive it as bias um, if they're receiving that question. Yep. All right, we'll have some more time for Q&A. So we're gonna watch this video and then I'm gonna send you in the breakout room. So let me tell you what we're gonna do is I'm just gonna show a couple of minutes and then I'm gonna have Matt send you into breakout rooms where we'll spend um, probably 10 minutes just talking about how would you handle this situation if you were actually a person witnessing it, not the person Joy is gonna be speaking. It's a situation in a grocery store from Cracking the Codes. If you've never seen it, it's a great documentary. Um, but she's going to be talking about an experience. So I just want you to imagine as you're listening to this, that you're someone in the grocery store in line nearby hearing this um, situation. So when you go into breakout rooms, discuss with your group, what would you do? My sister-in-law, uh, who's half black, half white, but looks white, blue eyes, whiter than most white folks, very white. 
she and I, you know, we kind of grew up together. We raised our children together. Uh, so they're first cousins. And we, you know, it's the wonderful, very, very multicultural family. So we're going in a safe way one day. And um, Kathleen, my, my sister-in-law, is in front of me. And she's, uh, you know, writing a check for her groceries. Now, my daughter, who at the time was 10 years old, was standing with me, and I was directly behind her, you know, getting ready to get my groceries. So Kathleen comes up, and the checker, who is a strawberry blonde, um, freckled, very delightful, warm, um, you know, the checker, this young woman, is talking to Kathleen. Hey, how you doing? This is a nice day today. They're just chatting up. And she says, yeah, so Kathy writes her, her check, and she steps off to the side with her groceries because she's waiting for me. Of course, again, Kathleen looks white, right? So I come up. No conversation. She looks up at me. Absolutely no, just a little chatter. And uh, I write my check. My daughter, however, is 10, notices immediately the difference in how she responds to me. So I write my check, and she goes, I'm going to need two pieces of ID. At which point, my daughter looks at me, and she gets very, very embarrassed, and tears are, are, are kind of coming up in her eye like, Mommy, you're not going to... You're not going to let her do this. Why is she doing this to us, right? So I'm trying to figure out what I should do because behind me are two elderly white women, right? And I'm thinking, okay, so then I become the angry black woman, right? And they're going to be, and I just, I'm, I'm just trying to second guess all the drama. So then I, I just give her the two pieces of ID. I say, you know, some things you got to choose your battles, right? And then it gets worse. She pulls out the bad check book right so the this is the book that shows the people who've written bad checks so she starts searching for my license in the bad checks at which point it's just out of control now just as i'm staying okay i know that was a teaser um but you have the scenario now so i just want you to go in and matt actually let's just do like eight minutes in the breakout rooms that should give everybody time to share um so head into the breakout rooms and just discuss what might you do to intervene in a situation like this? And we'll have each room report out on what you came up with. All right, we're back. We're back, we're back. So, um, are you still seeing my screen? We good to go? Okay, perfect. So before we do a share out, I just want to get just overall reactions now that I can see you all again. Do you think that bystander intervention could be helpful in this situation? The one that you just heard in the grocery store described. So if you think yes, use the clap reaction. If you think perhaps use the heart reaction. If you think no, a uh, situation still would have likely happened even without uh, or with or without bystander intervention, give me a thumbs up. Okay, so I'm seeing mostly the perhaps, depending can, on a number of factors. Can you ask the question again? Sure. Could bystander intervention be helpful in this situation? Yes, perhaps, or no? So I think I'm interpreting your question to be more about the effect of my intervention versus just doing it in general, right? So like in my mind, I think that the strategies that I discuss would be help, would actually yes. have an impact, but at the yes. same time, my strategies may have had zero impact, right? Because if the right. person isn't willing to change the behavior that they're doing, there's no change, yeah. right? 
Yeah. So I'm not sure where the impact should lie. Is it on the person who is doing the offense to change? Or is it simply about the person who is being targeted, feeling supported? So I think that's why I'm in the middle and I can't put all those different reactions up. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I saw a lot of perhaps, and maybe that was why there were so many. Um, I think that there are a number of factors. And the thing about bystander intervention, right, is it's for everyone. When you intervene, it is sending a clear message that you care about those around you, that you want to restore harm that's been done. And so that sends a message to everyone else. But the ultimate goal is to help the person who needs help in that moment, right? And so no matter what your intervention technique is, you're trying to do something that is going to have a better impact on them than whatever the behavior is. And so I think that your interpretation of the question was spot on. So let's hear from some of the groups. Um, what were some of the things that came up that you would use to intervene in this situation? Go for it, Bradley. Um, so I was in a group with Sarah and with Kelsey, and we kind of came to the perhaps as a group because of two things. So the consideration of centering equity in this work mm -hmm. um, and in all things, you know, kind of led us to, to, to consider things from the perspective of the perceived victim, right? Um, so the first thing that I have learned over time, you know, like maybe I'm ADHD, AF, and a mixed person, Jamaican, whatever, and I'm LGBTQIA2A, you know, like whatever. That doesn't negate the fact that I'm a cisgendered male, right? Yeah. Yes. So often I walk through the world and people don't perceive me as other things. I'm, you know, I have a high degree of, of white passing privilege and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. I'm speaking white right now, you know, to, to blend in and assimilate, which is, you know, protection for myself. Mm -hmm. And that results in me just resting on the privilege that I do have, a cisgendered male, you know, with fancy degrees, so on and so forth. And it's really important, I've learned through time, to first check and see if the perceived victim even needs help. The, Absolutely. the thing that I have seen sometimes is somebody is in the line and you know they might be looking through the bad checkbook and that woman is a mother and has like two kids or is on the phone playing Candy Crush and it's after work. She might be a, an EDI consultant and she's just checked out and like whatever. And then I, as a bystander, <laughs> mansplain the situation away even though I'm trying to protect her interests from my perspective, I haven't stopped to consider her own perspective. So now she has to step into the situation, which is in fact rude traumatization of yep, absolutely. this individual. So you said something about perhaps it could have a good effect, perhaps nothing at all. I actually think that some interventions can be harmful because of a failure to center equity. In absolutely. Process, absolutely. As well as taking a harm reductive approach. So we also, yep. on that second piece, we discussed... So Kelsey and Sarah had some really great, you know, suggestions for how to, you know, think about the timing of it, you know, yes. Sarah and I were talking about, okay, how do we approach that person afterwards and say, hey, I think this is what happened and person to person, that might not be great. And then Kelsey was like, also, what about the person? Yeah. So I'll say this right now. Sorry. I just have one quick thought on that because Kelsey's it. point yeah. was really important is how can we approach the person after the fact? Sometimes we just need to let it play out and not get involved and just do the 
work of care if that person is within our you know circle right yeah sometimes yeah. we can check in afterwards and say hey I know that sucks like this happened you know to me recently with a colleague that I don't really work with but I heard a brand new person walk into the room not ever knowing her and ask her if she was pregnant or not and I was like don't do that to somebody you know is just starting their you know employment so on and so forth that can make her feel uncomfortable and there's so much that we have to do in terms of labor relations in this country to be able to be treating you know people experiencing pregnancy ethically um so all that to say it's like that was not a, absolutely not the moment to approach her but afterwards i was like yo do you know that person are you okay do you need anything right is it offensive or annoying if i'm stepping up or should i help yeah for time's sake i'll keep this brief but i'll i want to respond some to some of what you said thank you all it sounds like you had a rich discussion i will say i do this work every day and i think that you all bring up some great points and earlier i mentioned a part of intervention is sometimes asking people how they want you to show up so i do love that you brought that up because it is good for you to say you know is it okay if i say something because the person may turn around and say no but i will tell you and especially when we're thinking about organizations and organizational cultures i have had people who have said you know what caused me the most harm is that everybody came to me afterwards and said i noticed this but no one did anything in the moment so sometimes you have to also take the step to interpret and realize that in that moment, you do need to figure out what can be said that won't cause more harm. Or even if it does, at least that can be justified in a different way than you not doing anything and always intervening in private. It doesn't go as far sometimes. And so that's the hard part about bystander intervention is trying to figure out when and what to do, right? But I just want you to know, a lot of times the folks I talk to always say, yeah, they said something, but to me, too little, too late, because nobody said anything in that moment. Nobody said anything in that meeting. No one said anything when I was being, you know, questioned or things like that. They let that play out. And then quietly, they want to come and be the person on the side. So that's just another thing to think about, right? All right. Uh, just a couple more reactions to what are some of the things you all talked about? Stacey, could I put you on the spot and, and share what you shared with our group and just sort of expressing curiosity? Sure. And I you know Jennifer is going to say she's heard this before because I know we've gone through this, but um, my approach would be one of curiosity without assigning negative intent, uh, but asking and stating my observation and then asking if I'm going to need, you know, so I, it would be helpful. So do I need to pull out my ID as well? I noticed you yep. did it with the first, but didn't with the first, but did with the second. So just let me know what I should be expecting as a way to call attention to it without Absolutely. assigning malintent. Maybe she knows the first person very well. Maybe she doesn't know. And I will be asked for it. I don't know. Yep. Nope. And that's a great way to not center the person who, you know, is being targeted, but to also not assume the intent of the other person is to just ask some questions. Um, so I love that, Stacey. Thank you. Uh, one more. All right. I find, myself, okay. I find oh. myself asking that, that um, when I have not spoken up, that I rationalize as to why, that I thought I'm, you know, maybe maybe I was going to cause that situation that Bradley spoke to. That maybe I can actually, you know, who am I as a white man to now speak up on behalf of this black woman? Am I am I, you know, creating this? You need my help 
situation that is just as questionable, but then am I also just rationalizing my inaction? Right. No, thank you, Dale. I appreciate that. And that actually goes into this. When you're thinking about should you respond, be mindful of the boundaries between your personal values and those of your organization. They don't always align. And so when you're intervening at work, you want to be sure that you're speaking from a place of the organizational values. Sometimes those do align. But if it's not that place, then you have to think about yourself as a representative of your organization inside and outside of your org, right? And so that's something to think about. You also want to think about, right, if you don't say something, will you regret it, right? Will you get home and think about the fact that you didn't say anything? Will they, will your inaction make them think that you're accepting of those behaviors as well? And then also just making sure that you don't get into a situation where people are defensive, right? Because that could lead to other issues. And so that's stuff you want to avoid. Dr. Katie, and then we'll wrap up. Yeah, I was just thinking one, one thing, and this has been real helpful. One is the humani Humanities Troop at BGSU. I'm not sure yeah. it's still active. Um, they have done wonders for uh, helping people understand how to how to have conversations. I'm so grateful that they're still active. Yeah, they, yeah, um, they are. Um, the the other thing I think about is like, what do I say to the person from a place of that's making the error from a place of compassion if they are unintentional, right? Yeah. So yep. might I say something like from a gestalt approach where I might say, hey, are you noticing what you're saying and how you're saying it right now? Are you noticing what you're doing? Yep. Um, yeah, maybe that's maybe just asking that person, hey, just notice what you're doing right now or something along those lines. That's a great uh, way to be direct. You know, right. And so I'm, I'm thinking about how, you know, like those kinds of things, how I might before I escalate, because I think sometimes confrontation, we think of uh, by uh, what is it called? Bystander or what? Effect. Uh, yeah. And the intervention. I forgot the yep, other, an the, intervention. Bystander intervention is not necessarily combative. It's not necessarily I'm coming no. with the, Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So just some other tips here, right? Remove yourself entirely. You could just say like, sorry, I need to take a quick call to get out of situations or to get someone else out of a situation. You could say like, I need to step out, but I need so-and-so with me. That's also a way that you can get somebody into a space where you could say, I noticed that this is happening inside that room. Is there something I can do to help you? Right. Um, so those are some things to think about. There's a slide here that was not for our discussion, um, a couple of slides that I did share with Matt because the slides will be shared out because these are things that I want you thinking about long-term as we think about the long-term goals of our recruitment, our retention efforts, um, really emergent change and how it all plays a part in belonging. This is stuff you need to be thinking about within your organization. We all deserve to be respected and valued. And so intervening helps to create a culture that is welcoming safe and more inclusive. And safety means so many things to so many people, right? And so there are things that you'll want to think about and intervention can help people. And so the slide deck that you'll take back just helps you think about, you know, when you witness bias or microaggressions, what is one thing you feel comfortable doing to intervene? So Dr. Katie just gave that great example. So just think about, right? Like just being able to say like, hey, did you notice that this is what this is doing? Or this is how I perceive this. And that just helps, right? You can also always report. Reporting is a way of acting. So even if you can't do something in the moment, go ahead and feel like you can report it. And then the last thing is some ways to actually intervene in the moment is paraphrase. Repeat back exactly what you heard and that will help them hear how you heard it and maybe that changes things. Have empathy and compassion. It's not intending to cause more harm to intervene. 
So show empathy and compassion when you're doing it. Sometimes you can just act clueless and folks will have to explain themselves. Um, you know, there are a lot of ways that you could do that, but most times, like one example I'll give um, is people used to say like, oh, that exam totally raped me. And I'd be like, how did an exam take advantage of you without your consent? That's not what I meant. Like, oh, but that's what you said, right? So sometimes just acting clueless, challenge stereotypes, either using your own experiences or those are people around you who you have their permission to use their experiences. And then at the end of the day, just be a good friend or colleague and remove people from situations that don't feel right or get authorities or emergency people in place if that's what it comes down to. Um, but I know that we are one minute over time. Um, so I'll stick around if folks have questions, but I know that folks probably have meetings and need to log off. But I really appreciate your participation today. Uh, this workshop is generally like an hour and 15 minutes at the shortest, and I have an eight-hour day that I do with organizations at the longest. And so you truly got a snippet, um, and I appreciate your participation in um, helping me through it. So thank you. Let's give Jennifer some applause here. Thank you, Jennifer. That's really awesome. And keep the recording going because if there's some discussion afterwards, I think that would be great. And, and Jennifer, I think if you're willing to do some interesting uh, online form of this, uh, I'm sure that uh, people here and others would support an online version, a longer version or a series or something like that as well sure. that we can do through the, the uh, DODC program or something along those lines. So, okay, perfect. Jennifer, thank you so much. I um, just uh, really easy to understand. Uh, I, I, I took away some, some key uh, understanding around key terms, but also concepts and some ways of handling things. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you all. Any questions? Hey, Jennifer, I think we had a question about the video that you shared, maybe yep. the name of it. I can plop the link in. It's um, called Cracking the Code, but I will just share the link, honestly. Uh, there it'll, is it'll be in the slides, right? It will be. Um, there's a full documentary. And underneath the slide, when you see the slide, underneath the slide deck, the actual URL was there as well. Okay. I have a question. So my question is when, okay, this is the bystander of the bystander. So as the bystander of the bystander, is it appropriate or what might be the strategy or thinking if I am observing someone attempting to intervene or provide some bystander support and it's not appropriate what they are doing, right? So if I use the video scenario again and someone is stepping in to provide support to the woman who's trying to check out for her groceries and I'm going, and I'm listening behind it going, ooh, ooh. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Mm -mm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Strain's about to come off the tracks, right? So then, do you use the same philosophy? How? How? That's just. My, I'm gonna leave my question there. Yeah. No. And, and that's tough, right? Because that all comes down to how the intervention is being interpreted by the person. So if that person feels like the intervention is happening in the moment is helpful in some way, but you're like, oh, that's that's just as problematic. Then, if they feel like it's helpful that's one of those ones where you just have to kind of let it be in that moment, right? But if you feel like, wow, this is really problematic, how we're, and especially in situations, say that, you know, um, someone's attempting to intervene, but language becomes an issue where they're using language that is inappropriate, 
um, and challenging, that is where you will want to say, because it helps. You never know if you're going to see those folks again. Like you might want to correct them in that moment. Um, I actually had an example of that yesterday. Someone was saying, um, and this is just, I think, getting exactly to what you were saying. Someone was saying, oh, did you know that there's a hair salon now in Bowling Green um, where they do braids? And um, I said, oh, that's interesting. And someone else was talking. And then that person said, uh, do you think that they could do um, natural hair? Someone and the person responded, I'm just in the the background of the conversation. I'm like in the background. And the person responded and said, I mean, from the pictures, it looked like they could do colored people's hair. Well, I had to step in in that moment and say, well, hold on, right? Like, right, right. Like, I, you all are excited for the right reasons that there's a stylist that is a little more inclusive and can reach a broader audience. But let's make sure that if we're communicating this, that we use terminology that's more appropriate. And you could have said people of color, and it would have been totally different than the way that you framed it, right? And so it was intervening in a conversation where the intent was perfectly pure, right? But also then trying to make sure that I don't allow that person to cause further harm next time that they're talking to someone else. And so sometimes around language, you definitely have to intervene, even if it's in the middle of someone else's intervention. As somebody who gets to pass in this country as a, as a middle-aged white man before people see anything else about me, um, to me, that's, that's really the challenge. I mean, I can tell you so many story of my stories of my ignorance with, with language, even you know, with my now mixed family, where I would dance around the term, not, like try not to say black, and they're like, the hell are you doing? Um, so I, I think, I think my, my hope is that people are just willing to um, I, no, how do I say this? I would, I, I'm hoping to claim for myself, rationalizing again, um, that, you know, I'm just bad with language sometimes. And it, it's so, I, I'm grateful, Jennifer, for the point of like intention versus impact, right? But that doesn't excuse me from my stupid language mistake can still very, be very impactful, even though it wasn't intended that way at all. No, and you're right. And one of the things that I try to tell people, and part of this is just doing this work as long as I have, is that we can't automatically jump to, you know, wanting to see people terminated or something like that for a lack of awareness. But what we can do is try to have that conversation to say, you know, let's work on this terminology and let's raise some awareness as to what's more appropriate and if it continues, if it's a pattern, then at that point, it is harmful, right? And so just trying to always raise your awareness through different workshops and readings and things of that nature and just discussions with people so that you can stay current with language is really important. Language is one of the most powerful things that exist. It literally everything that we do revolves around the various narratives that we are all sharing on a daily basis, right? And so language changes things. And it's really important that we understand how to communicate with one another in a way that is going to be helpful and not harmful. Occasionally, people will be harmed with words. It's just the reality. But it's important that we own those things and say, you know, and that's why I started off with bystander intervention has to first start with you because owning, right? Like I don't always get this right. Sometimes I'll make mistakes. Sometimes that might hurt the folks around me, but I want to try. 
that's an important step. But then it's actually committing to trying and not just always giving yourself kind of the excuse of, I don't always get this right, but say, I'm going to do everything I can to get this right. And sometimes I'll still get it wrong and correct me in those moments. I'm curious in the, in the progression of the video, does Joy offer what she wished those two white ladies behind her might have said? So what ends up happening in the video is the sister comes back and says, why are you doing this? Kind of what Dr. Katie said, right? Like, why are you doing this? Do you realize how this sounds? Do you realize what this looks like? And then the folks behind her then chime in and say, similar to what Stacy said, like, so are you going to ask me the same thing? And then someone else calls over a manager. And so what you get to see is the direct you get to see the delegating, you get to see the, you know, really causing that, you get to see all forms of bystander intervention play out, but it all starts because the sister comes back. And one of the things that I talk about when I talk about this longer is oftentimes the folks who fail us most in intervening are the folks who know us best. And so I was glad in that instance, the sister is the one who came back because a lot of times the people who are around us and know us, and especially within our organizations, if they don't intervene on our behalf, why should we have to count on strangers to do it? right? But the people who often fail us are the folks who we know, and they think to themselves, I can just talk to you later. But people are often like, no, I don't want to be in an organizational culture where everything is done in private. If we're going to shift norms, if we're going to shift the climate, if we're going to shift the culture, we need to get into the habit of raising that awareness in the moment, addressing those things mm -hmm. in the meeting. And, you know, we talk about elephants in the room, put it on the table like don't even just let it sit out in the corner like if there is something that needs to be discussed that's a big part of creating a culture that values intervention is that the leadership starts off by saying if there is something that happens in the space that makes anybody feel devalued uncomfortable unwelcome like they don't belong we need to name it in this space and correct it up front and so those are the things that you try to do with getting people to understand the importance of bystander intervention is helping them feel empowered enough to say something and do something in those moments. All right, so I know we have gone well over. I appreciate a group of you sticking around for Q&A. Yeah, I just really, I, just, I, I didn't know that the um, humanities troop, I'm so glad. Um, yes, they still do their work for sure. Yeah, so I'm I'm gonna make sure I get them in on some of our class because they do such a great job. They do, they do, and they act it out. And so it's always really helpful to see it in action and then figure out how to respond to things. Right. Yeah, and they make it less scary. Right. You know, for the person like for me to make mistakes, like if yeah. I'm curious or if I'm doing something, they really help. You know, and I like your point around just say I'm not sure how to say this. Uh, this is what I'm trying, you know, I'm right. my goal is this, and this is what I'm trying to do. I really get what I did. I didn't get this until today. And that was, where are you from? It's less about the intention. It's more about helping the person understand my intention. Right. right? So right. I just said, hey, I'm, I'm, I, I just, I really love meeting people from, you know, different, uh, you know, like you said. And if I say that and say, I'd like to ask you, I'm just tell me, I'd like to learn more about you like because I, I get it, like I get into Uber uh, cars sometimes, and and the person <laughs> will have a different accent, and I'll be curious. Where are you from? Like you know, I, I'm really curious. Like I want to know. And so tell me about your country, and tell me about you know how things are there. I'm just curious, right? So now I know that I'll say a little something before I ask. Right. 
that next time. I'll say a little bit more of, a, of an intention or a framing before I say. And you know, it's interesting, Jennifer, I'll just say that you know, we, in our collaborative processes, we always talk about the invitation, right? Mm-hmm. I don't invite to collaborative conversation. Um, it's really important because the way we frame uh, the intention of the conversation, that's the process, right. And the way we frame and invite people in can set the stage for a much better conversation. So I think that's really interesting. So thank you. I, I, no uh, uh, today, that was nice. Well, thank you all. Um, if there are ever any questions, just feel free to send me an email. Um, here, I'll pop my email in the chat. Can I ask you one quick language question? In, sure. your, uh, in the beginning, you referenced a term that was new to me, uh, bias incident. Mm-hmm. How is a bias incident different from a microaggression? Mm-hmm. So a bias incident is often more of the name calling. Um, it's, it's the action, whereas microaggressions are often more about like the ignoring, um, the rudeness, the things like that. Like, so the microaggressions, it's the inactions, right? Sometimes, but it's, it's more about bias incidents have a more direct, like actual incident attached to it. You've called someone a name, you've written something that's inappropriate. You've done something that's inappropriate and bias incidents if you have a bias incident coupled with also something that's a violation of law, that's where you start to cross into like hate crimes, right? Um, so there are all these variations that can get dangerously close to each other. And that's why you want to stop them from occurring too. But the microaggressions are more about what you're ignoring about a person, whereas a bias incident is what you're bringing toward them because of their perceived or actual identity. So it would tend to be likely more severe and with more of an assumed intent rather than yes man yes. i just didn't realize how stupid i sound when i say this right okay right yeah thank you no problem all right everyone awesome good to see everybody thank you jennifer good to see you tom thank you. Thanks. thanks i appreciate you bye everybody thank you